Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. My freshman year in college, I... uh... Before I met Mandy, I was kind of interested in a girl from Spokane. And I remember sitting at lunch with her one day, talking uh, with her about what she did growing up. And she came from a hunter's family. They loved to hunt, and she loved to hunt and gut and clean animals. And she looked at me and she said, over lunch, I dare you to tell me a story that I can't handle while I'm eating. So I did. And we never went out again. I don't know if there's a connection, but I think I learned something. I told her about a story when I was working on the farm, pumping out manure from under the hog barn. Uh, some of you have heard me tell this story once other time a few years ago. Uh, we, we would pump everything out of the pit into a 2,000-gallon tank. It would take 10 minutes to fill that 2,000-gallon tank. So you may remember that my boss got the bright idea to reverse the valve from sucking to blowing and turn our 8-inch hose into something akin to a straw in an ice cream shake making bubbles. The reason was that there was a crust floating on top of the manure pit, and he wanted to break that up because he didn't want either one of us to have to get down in the pit to clean that out. And I certainly never wanted to go down there because I didn't want to slosh around in months-old manure and dead carcasses of baby pigs that were thrown down there. So we... Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, so, so, sorry. You're gonna probably email me and ask me never to tell this story again. So we switched the valve in the front and we walked around back and as both of us are looking through the three foot, three foot hole in the concrete, uh, my boss cracks the valve and as you may recall, I barely got my mouth and eyes closed as the wall of manure at 100 miles an hour came blowing back on us. Covering us from head to toe in hog manure, two to three inches thick on my glasses. I had to take my glasses off to even see to run to the barn and hose off in 50-degree water from the well. The eight-inch hose that fills a 2,000-gallon tank in 10 minutes. What were we thinking? My mom, uh, actually that day when I got home, smelled me when I was halfway through the garage and hollered and said, don't you dare come in the house. And she made me strip in the garage and throw my clothes immediately in the garbage can. I went and showered for over an hour, scrubbing with every kind of soap we had and a brush until I was raw, trying to get rid of the smell. But for the next really hot summer week, every drop of sweat that I perspired was rotten with manure seeping out of my pores. Heat really does make things smell worse. We're going to see today, this actually ties in. We're going to see today that smelling like death has permeated the very being of the Israelites, even after God has delivered them from Egypt. And when the heat is on, it becomes extra obvious. The same thing is actually very true, I think, of our nature as human beings in us as well. And unless we recognize it and let God do a work in us, we will also fall prey to smelling when the heat is on in life. So to set up this discussion, we're going to be spending most of our time in Exodus 32, but I want to go back all the way to Exodus 20 and give you a kind of a timeline. Exodus 32 is actually where we see the Cecil B. DeMille moment where Moses receives the Ten Commandments and comes down with the tablets. But what you may not realize 
realize, because Cecil B. DeMille doesn't do the whole story, is that they already received the Ten Commandments all the way back in chapter 20 before they ever got the stone tablets in chapter 32. So the Israelites initially received the Ten Commandments, and and they had a covenant ceremony. And then God continues to speak through Moses and and teaches them a whole bunch of laws about what the Ten Commandments would look like in relationships and business and in character. And then God asks Moses and Joshua, his aide, the same Joshua who would become the leader of Israel when Moses dies, to go back up the mountain again. And that's when God gives them the actual stone tablets with the Ten Commandments and a bunch of additional instructions. So from the time the Israelites leave Egypt until chapter 32, it's somewhere between three and 12 months, according to scholars. The Israelites have seen in that time incredible miracles. Yet in Exodus 32, when Moses and Joshua take the second trip up the mountain, they're gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and the heat is on, and the stench starts to emerge from the hearts of the Israelites. So let's pick up the text there. It says this. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So the Israelites did what? I mean, over the past two years, they've seen the ten plagues that God brought on the Egyptians when Pharaoh refused to obey God and free them. They, they saw God bring them through the Red Sea with the Egyptian army breathing down their necks. They saw God lead them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And don't forget the manna. manna. God fed them with this healthy, whole grain, organic, non-GMO, sweet, awesome-tasting honey grams that showed up on the ground every day. And they just went out and picked them up. And when they got tired of that and they complained and wanted meat, God caused a whole flock of quail to get tired and fall to the ground and be picked up to eat right where the Israelites were. And when they got thirsty and they were without water, God made water spring from the rock. And now, these last 40 days while Moses has been gone, even a little bit before that, they've been standing next to the Mount Sinai where the whole mountain has been enveloped in what would be a scene out of a horror movie with all sorts of paranormal occurrences and lightning and light and dark clouds and earthquakes and thunder and sounds like a trumpet sounding and God's voice speaking. And God has been speaking to Moses like few in history have ever heard God speak. And all of these things are quickly forgotten. And we see them kick off this wild golden calf worship party. Remember where they got the gold? Just months earlier, the Egyptians were so awestruck by God and so ready to see the Israelites leave that they unloaded all of their gold on their former slaves, hoping that these gifts would result in God being pleased and the plagues stopping. God orchestrated the Israelites leaving slavery and walking out of Egypt free as wealthy people. It was God's gift to the Israelites. In a sense, God's bride is what Israel was. So the insult in what the Israelites are doing here is something akin with the golden calf is something akin to your husband or wife hawking their wedding ring to pay for the hotel room to have an affair. 
They go on to offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the golden calf, which are the offerings Moses had just instructed and taught them about in chapter 29, just a few days earlier before going up on the mountain. And the text continues, Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That Hebrew word that is translated revelry is a word that communicates unrestrained partying. Now, before we go on, and just say, wow, how could the Israelites do this? That's just insane. I would never do that in the context of what they're... Let's just step back for a second and understand the situation. Israel was in the middle of the desert with too many people in too small of an area for the desert to support them without God's provision. The manna and quail are great, but hey, Moses is gone and that could dry up any time. These are people with families. And, and standing in the middle of the desert with no jobs and no homes and feeling exposed and vulnerable and scared. Furthermore, when you understand what's going on in this text, what is actually happening is still very, very wrong, but it's not insane like we tend to think when we read this story. Much of what they are doing is just what they grew up around in the culture of Egypt, what they had always known. In fact, back then in some cultures, a calf or a bull, and they would have known this, didn't actually represent, even though we would think of it as an idol, it didn't represent the God to them. It actually represented the footstool upon which their invisible God was riding. So notice when Aaron says, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. That word Lord is actually the Hebrew word Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. So it may have seemed in Aaron's rationalizing mind that what he was creating was a calf upon which their unseen God Yahweh was sitting and in his mind they're still worshiping the one true God Yahweh. The text actually shapes the events a little bit more and tells us how people are interpreting that. It goes on and says, Aaron took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods plural, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Egypt. They're saying God's plural. The people are putting the calf as a focal point of worship along with Yahweh. So regardless of what Aaron's intent is, that's what is happening in the people. The calf God is actually something that many of them participated probably in the worship of while in Egypt along with their masters. It's what they knew. It's what they trusted. It was a touch point of familiarity, the known that was accepted in the dominant culture in which they had grown up in. In a sense, it seems they may have been almost hedging their bet, worshiping Yahweh and what they had culturally known. In a sense, they're asking the question, why do we have to give up our culture's values to worship God? Which leads us to our first of two main lessons for today. When you're under stress, fearful, you tend to return to old habits and old idolatries. We all do. All of us, before we were saved, before we knew God, had sinful patterns in our lives, idolatries, things that we trusted in and we sought after, things that gave our lives meaning more than God did. And the more than God thing is actually what makes them an idol. 
For many of us, when the heat is on, when it seems like God is not doing anything in our lives, when we feel the stress, the pressure of loneliness and fear, we get impatient and we just have to do something. So we return to the old ways, the old idols of doing things. We make our altars to these idols and that corrupts our relationship with God. Again, remember, the calf was just something they worshipped in Egypt. They didn't want to reject God. They just wanted to depend on it alongside, its idol alongside of God. Which begs a question. What do you tend to trust in alongside of God? About where do you think, I know I need God in my life, but I also need this in my life to be okay. I think if we want to know where those areas are, we just look at what we reflexively turn to in times of stress and fear, whether it's binge-watching and the content of whatever that we're binge-watching. It looks like the romance or the sex or the, or the eating that we do. Or for some of you, you escape the stress of a bad life by just burying yourself in work. When you feel threatened, uh, there's another question, when you feel threatened, to what do you turn for defense and protection? You think, okay, as long as I have that, everything will be okay. For many of you, your mind goes right to your bank account, and you think, okay, as long as I'm financially secure, then I am ultimately secure, and I'll be okay. Or when you feel threatened because of others are upset with you, what is it that you turn to to tell yourself you're okay? Do you think, well, they may not like me, but I'm a good person even if they don't see it. I'm smart. Or, or maybe you turn to, I have a lot of potential, or I have a good mother, or I'm, or I'm, I'm a good mother, or I'm, a, I'm religious, or I, I'm whatever I'm good at. You think, because blank is true about me, I have worth. Here's another question. What brings out the worst in you? What puts you on edge? What causes you to lose your temper or be afraid. That pressure reveals for us those cultural idols, those things that we always turn to in the past. When your finances are sketchy, where do you turn? When others are not happy with you. For some of you, what really messes you up and puts you on edge is you hear about your rivals doing well, those people who don't have as good a character as you or didn't do things as honest as you or, 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 or you're just competitive with them, somehow inwardly competitive with them, and they do well, and it, and it irks you, and it, you, you turn to something else. Maybe family or relational problems just devastate you. Fear or worry or your temper reveal what you trust in because you think, I cannot lose this and life still be okay. Or here's another way of approaching the question. Which unanswered prayers have really bothered you in life? I mean, that's what the Israelites are facing. Moses is up on the hill alone in the harsh desert. Which things in God have, which things have you asked God that He hasn't given you that you are angry with Him about? Maybe it's you're still single or maybe it's the stocks crashed and your retirement isn't what you hoped it would be or, but you say, is there anything wrong with being disappointed in the way things have turned out? No, there's nothing wrong with being disappointed. We're not talking about just disappointment. I mean, sometimes you pray and you work for something and you don't get it and you're disappointed, but you move on. You trust God has a plan and, and it makes him to make something good out of that disappointment. But sometimes you pray and you work for something and you don't get it 
and you become bitter and you despair. See, that's what reveals the idolatry. Here's the point. Times of fear or stress or anxiety cause old idolatries that still grip our souls to resurface. It's like the heat causing that drop of sweat to leach out some of that manure stuck in your skin. Ross, don't talk about that anymore. The scent of death oozing out of you when the heat is on. The Israelites defend their sin, actually, saying basically, Moses, it's your fault. You were gone and we felt afraid. Moses' absence is not what caused this situation. The idolatry of their hearts is what caused it. Moses' absence just revealed it. We also often turn to blame in those situations in our life. But the situations are not the problem. Life, we've done illustrations like this in the past. When life shakes us and something comes out, or life wounds us and something comes out, what caused the water to come out? I mean, because I can take this same cup and nothing comes out. It's not the shaking in life. It's not the wounds in life that we experience that cause us to turn to idolatry, that cause us to turn to sinful behaviors. It's the fact that what's inside of us, there's water, there's manure still in our pores, and the water coming out of us brings it out. See, when life knocks us around or when wounds come in life, they only reveal what's inside of us. If we follow Jesus and life knocks us, what spills out? Is it, is it Jesus or something else? And see, this is the question. What is inside of you and me? Where does your mind turn when it is idle? What does your mind drift effortlessly to? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? Or do you think up scenarios of career advancement or revenge on someone when they wronged you or shamed you, just constantly dominated in your thinking by justice and revenge? Maybe you daydream about owning a particular home or a type of car or some other material possession. Or maybe, maybe you daydream about a relationship with somebody. Wanting or desiring these things is not idolatry. Thinking about them from time to time is not idolatry. But when they dominate your thinking, when they control your emotions and your moods and your money and your actions more than God, it's idolatry. What do you send most of your money on? Tim Keller has a quote that echoes a famous quote of Jesus. He says, your money flows effortlessly to your greatest love. Where do you overspend, especially to the neglect of generosity to God's mission or healthy, balanced budget in your life? See, these are idols we worship more than God, and these idols drive us. All these questions reveal what's inside of us. These things are like smoke from a fire at the altar of the God you've been worshiping. And the story of the altar of the golden calf is inviting us to not just wave away the smoke and cover it up, but to put the fire out. And you can imagine this whole golden calf thing grieves God because 
The people are choosing something other than Him even in spite of all that He's done to powerfully demonstrate His love. Their sinful rebellion arouses God's anger. So the next scene is with is God with Moses up on the mountain. In verse 7 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. Do you hear the tone? God's language isn't even claiming the people as his own anymore. Your people, Moses, not mine. And God continues saying, They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. And just days earlier, they were given the Ten Commandments, one of which was, Do not make any idols. And now they're doing it. So quickly, God continues. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, plural Israel, who brought you up out of Israel. And just days earlier, they were given the Ten Commandments, which is prefaced with saying, I am the Lord, singular, not plural, who brought you out of Egypt. God goes on, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, that I will make, and then, then I will make you into a great nation. I'll start over with you, Moses. God is ready to throw these people into the too damaged to repair bin at Walmart. And then start over with Moses. Or is he? Or is he? Think about what we talked about last week in the blood path covenant. What did God say there? He said, I'll take the penalty of death upon myself if I do not fulfill the terms of the covenant. And God also said, I'll take the penalty of death upon myself if you do not fulfill the covenant. In other words, God said this promise is sure. And God spoke to Abraham and told him about how the people would go into Egypt for 400 years and then come out to the promised land as a great nation. And here we are in the process of God fulfilling what he guaranteed 400 years before. So is God really intending to kill everyone in the desert and start over? Or is this Moses's Isaac? Much like God worked with Abraham in asking him to sacrifice Isaac, is God doing something similar here with Moses for the purpose of growing something in Moses as the leader and thereby teaching us today what it is he wants to grow in us as we relate to family and friends and our community and our nation and their idolatrous altars that they use? See, I and many other theologians believe that's exactly what is happening here. God is testing Moses, shaping Moses' heart as a follower of God and a leader to reflect God's love and heart. So the text goes on in verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? You hear Moses, he's flipping the language back on God. God said, you. Now Moses almost impertinently is saying, no, God, you brought them out. I couldn't have done this on my own. In all of this, God is, in all of us, God is constantly probing and, and provoking situations to help our hearts come to own this very same statement. I couldn't do this on my own. 
I couldn't do this without you, God. I am completely dependent and helpless without you, God. And what Moses is doing is rightly, explicitly giving glory to God for all that has happened under his leadership tenure with the Israelites. Moses is refusing to take any glory from himself, not in a self-debasing way, but just in a simple, full, honest acknowledgement of God's goodness and glory. Moses goes further and says this in verse 12. He said, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he, God, brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your face, your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself, referring back to this blood path covenant that we talked about last week. He says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So the second lesson from this passage is simply this. God is calling each and every one of us to be an intercessor. What does that mean? Intercessor means an advocate, one who stands up for others, one who intercedes for the people around us, stepping into the middle of the problem and bringing healing and resolution between two parties, in this instance, between God and the people. So this kind of godly intercession is to be fiercely with great determination and perseverance to pursue forgiveness and blessing, even for the most sinfully vile people in our lives through our prayer and our actions. I think what the story actually even illustrates further is that sometimes the hardest people to, be, to contend for in prayer, the hardest people to want to love and forgive in our lives aren't necessarily the most sinfully vile. They are the hardest people are our family and our friends, our loved ones, our spouse, our our parents who worship at the altars of mixed gods, who sometimes because of that live an unrestrained sinful behavior in their life that is so disheartening to God and to us. Moses wonderfully passes the test of dependence on God. But the test isn't done, so let's read on. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. This is the Cecil B. DeMille moment with Charlton Heston. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. But Moses, kind of, I see him kind of calmly replying, it's not the sound of victory, it's not the sound of defeat, it's the sound of singing that I hear. See, I can still hear Moses in his quiet confidence, almost a, a calmness about him. I mean, he really responded well to God the first time when God just told him, but Moses hasn't seen how bad things really are yet. So verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. Talk about exploding with anger. Moses broke the tablets. He had spent 40 days with God in order for God to give him. What do you say to God on that one? Oops. 
And Moses doesn't even seem to pay attention to that. He is so grieved. You almost get the sense that the text, from the text that he was so angry, he couldn't even speak, and he just went right into action and solution-oriented mode. At verse 20, it says, And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. And then he ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water, and he made the Israelites drink it. And now we get to one of the strangest parts of the story. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. And you can hear in Moses' thoughts thinking, yeah, yeah, Aaron, I'm with you. The pressure was great. I felt that. I get that. And yet Moses can also hear the blaming excuse coming on. And Aaron unwisely doesn't shut up. He goes on saying, so I told them. Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it in the fire, and oops, out came the calf. What? I mean, come on, is Aaron in third grade or something? Oh, yeah, Dad, I just walked out of the store, and lo and behold, I found candy in my pocket. I have no idea how it got there. Moses saw that the people were running wild, verse 25. And that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the tent and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Israelites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp, one end to the other, each killing his brother, friend, and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 people died. And Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own son and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Can you imagine how bitter this moment was? The Levites, who were the pastors of the people, were supposed to care for the people, and yet on this day they slaughtered their friends and neighbors. Now, I get, I get how incredibly distressing and off-putting and confusing this text is for us to reconcile this with a loving God. We could get into the weeds of that discussion, and I can tell you there are good, reasonable answers, but even those reasonable answers would not take away those distressing feelings for any of us. But we're not going to go down that path today. Here's what I want you to see in this today. Sin, idolatry, is extremely serious in God's eyes because it is so devastatingly harmful. Because sin and idolatry is never just an individual thing. Your sin will always affect others, and it spreads, Jesus says, like yeast through dough. Without repentance and forgiveness and cleansing, a minor sexual sin of one generation leads to greater sexual sin in the next generation. A minor greed in one generation leads to more greed in the next. It's the idea of avarice. Avarice is that term that means this, that we say the line of acceptable in our generation is here and the next generation is going to push that a little higher or a little further. The point is, God is showing them the severity of their sin and trying to wake them up as to how serious it really is. 
We then see Moses taking time to think and pray, and the text continues. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I'll go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin the people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. And here is where we see what God is working in Moses to bring in his life. And God is asking of Moses the same kind of love that God has for us. The kind that is like what we saw in the blood path covenant altar last week. The kind of love that is willing to put yourself on the line for the sake of another person. To take the penalty of another on ourselves. That's the place God will bring every single one of us who claim to follow Jesus. Because it is what it means to take up a cross and follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be like Jesus is to love like Jesus. I think we tend in life to want to live life looking for the ideal community, the ideal friends, the ideal family, the ideal spouse, the ideal colleagues. But all of us are idolaters. We all have our golden calf altars from time to time, and all of us can be hard to love from time to time. And God is asking us to love like He loves, unrelentingly. When someone in our culture completely offends our sense of morality and rightness, what will our response be? This is the crux of the question. God is calling each of us to persevere and standing in the gap and interceding for people around us, to love them so much that when they sin, that we will plead with God for their forgiveness, even if it means we have to be so close to them on a continual basis that it is painful and difficult and we have to take the penalty upon ourselves. As we pray for and reach out to our community, to our five, to those in need, God is calling us to intercede like Jesus, to intercede like Moses. You see, we often in the church isolate this word interceding to prayer, or even more specifically, sometimes we isolate it to a specific kind of person and prayer, and we call them intercessors, which in many people's minds is a person who is really not at all like me. They're kind of weird because they like to pray all day long. But it's more than that. It is in a time of rejection, a time of anger, a time of grief, a time of great, great disappointment in a relationship with someone we love or know. It is interceding, is actively working to secure forgiveness and reconciliation with God and moving toward the person, working on behalf of that someone in a way we pray, in our action, in our word, in our deed, in our continual offering of friendship to them. In the story as it relates to Moses, God is setting up one of the deepest core discipleship moments that every single one of us will face. Do we choose to cut and run and let a person or a community be destroyed by their sin because it would be easier for God, we think, to start over fresh in our lives in a different setting? 
God is testing actually and confronting our self-centeredness and our self-interest in us. The desire for us to be better than others, to separate ourselves from difficult others, the desire to cut and run and prioritize our own comfort and just start over rather than staying faithful even in really difficult relationships. Will we cut and run and let others be left to their own devices, their own sin and destruction? Or will we intercede on behalf of those people and that community? See, God said to Moses, let me just annihilate them and start over. But Moses responds in the way that God hopes he will. The very same kind of love that he has for us that constantly turns towards us and moves towards us and fights for us and for our salvation. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. There are two application questions I want to leave us with today. Who in your life is God asking you to love, to serve, to lead, to fight for, to intercede for, even in the middle of disappointment and pain? And the second question, where is God asking you to worship Him and trust Him more than you trust cultural idols that you get wrapped up into? As we continue our Lenten Leap of Faith season, we'll be encouraging you in a couple weeks to participate in an all-church fast the week leading up to Good Friday, Easter. We'll give more information on that in the future. Part of fasting, part of fasting, whether it is from food or technology or something else, is to take away from, is for us to take away those things that we're culturally concerned might be mixing with God and we might be worshiping them as well. And instead, take time away from them to set up new, fresh altars with God. And altars can be simple things like taking more time to have time in the Bible and prayer, like turning the TV off and ending your day with a sense of quiet thanksgiving and prayer before bed, and, or to be conscious about kneeling in the morning and dedicating your day to God. Or it can be as simple as taking moments, even when everybody else is looking at you, thinking you're totally in the meeting and you're there I mean, before you make a decision at work, just taking a moment when nobody else knows you're praying and pray under your breath and turn the decision over to God. As we come and Celebrate communion today. Let this be your altar today, the place where you connect with God as you receive the symbols of his body and the blood given for you and remember and repent of the things that you've chosen above him, things you've chosen to place your trust in when you're stressed, the things you go to when you're stressed rather than him. As you take the bread and juice just maybe just actively choose God with your thoughts and your words saying, I want you. I need you. God, help me put you first in my life. And then just thank him for it. Would you stand with me as we pray? And communion servers, could you come down right now? God, it is so amazingly easy for me, for all of us, I think, to just, when we're stressed, when we're tired, when we're frustrated that you don't seem to be showing up like we thought you would or we've wanted you to, to turn to things other than you. And 
Lord, we all place our golden calves beside you and we worship. God, we repent of that. And Lord, I'm so grateful that you have no intention of destroying us, you, you, that you come to us with love and encouragement and that, and that you even take time to challenge Moses and us to be that same way to other people. Lord, I pray for the difficult people in our lives, the, the ones who are living unrestrained in an area that is just so hurtful to them and so hurtful to us and others. Lord, I pray... I pray that you would help us be the intercessors who step into that gap and bring your presence in a way that, that brings forgiveness and restoration and healing. Lord, forgive us for the many times we have just cut and run and said, I want life to be easy. I just want easy, God. And you called us to intercede. Would you go with us this week? in those moments of intercession. And Lord, as we come and receive your ele these elements, Lord, thank you. Thank you that they symbolize the blood path that we talked about last week that Jesus did so perfectly, that he took everything, everything, and we can just declare our dependence on you. We can receive your love and your forgiveness. So come and meet us in this moment as we worship you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.